Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... So many homeowners are feeling stuck. You know, they're lucky enough to have a low rate, but they're afraid to move or they're just worried that the costs are going to be so exorbitant compared to where they are right now. A conversation with Alexis Leandas on homeowners feeling trapped by their cheap mortgages. And... If you're going to use a Chinese version of a chat GPT, it's going to align with the Communist Party's view of the world, right? So if you ask them politically sensitive questions about... US or Taiwan or China's place in the world, you are going to get that view of the world. Tim Culpin on how chat GPT will reform partially according to its ideological underpinnings. First, though, to this extraordinary month in markets, particularly rates markets. Chief rates correspondent Garfield Reynolds joins. Garfield, yield start of the month at 4.109 on the twos. We're now at 4.69. And on the tens, we were at 3.42. We're now above 3.87. To some extent, that's just a regular repricing, right? The Fed moving by 25 basis points and signaling more to come. Looking back on the month, has it been an easy repricing or did it cause pain in places? No, it's uh, definitely not been uh, an easy repricing. You know, the market had to abandon the thesis that the Fed was close to calling halt and that then we could start anticipating when they might cut. We had 75 basis point hike in November, 50 in December, and then you know, as expected at the beginning of this month, we had 25. So the market was sort of going, okay, Next move is no interest rate hike at all. And the next move after that is a cut. Instead, the Fed has made it clear that it's going to do multiple hikes from here. In fact, by now, the pricing is for three more at least, and that it's going to hold rates higher for quite some time. Now, that's a message the Fed had been sending for some time, but mm. it took you know several punches to the gut for bond bulls before that message got across. Is the message now across? Yeah, I mean, the message is now pretty much across. I think you can partly see that with, you know, there's a lessening in volatility and a willingness for some investors to come back in at these elevated yields, you know, sort of buy and hold investors. But there's kind of a sense that the bond market, at the very least, is no longer fighting the Fed. It's now much more closely in line with the Fed starting with that rate pricing that I talked about, where the expectation is for a peak rate of 75 basis points higher from here and probably no rate cuts until next year. Ten-year yields seem to be reluctant to cross that 4% level again. Now, they did last October, November, but not since. The question might be if 3.974, which was the high most recently, does that represent the bearish extreme in tens for the time being, do you think? No, I, I don't think it does. I think that's a level that has been attractive for buy and hold investors. I had a lot of people talking to me about dipping their toes in at this sort of level. But that's the thing. <laughs> they want to be sure the temperature is right there. So things like 
PCE price indicates next month's jobs data, well, this month's jobs data report at the beginning of next month, then also inflation and what the Fed says at its last meeting. All of these things have the potential to provide fresh either data or central bank stance shocks that could readily drive yields higher. There is a pretty strong anticipation that if 10-year yield does go higher, you know, something... 4.3% is still seen, for the moment at least, being the, probably the peak of this cycle. I'm a bit sceptical about that estimation, considering that historically 10-year yields have topped out around about the same level as the Fed's cash rate, and the Fed's cash rate is already considerably above that 4.33% peak we saw in October for the 10-year yield. So potentially more pain to come. Who's feeling that pain, Garfield? Bond investors are certainly feeling that pain. The global aggregate index, it had its best January ever, and those gains almost got wiped out in February. So bond investors are certainly suffering. At the very least, they're looking at the potential that this year, if it is going to be gains, it's going to be gains eked out rather than a strong bounce back, which they were looking for. There's also been pain spreading across equities as they have lost momentum. And, and again, they initially they were holding up okay when bonds started to turn south. Uh, and there was some thought that the strong correlation we had seen between the two usually not correlated asset classes, was going to break. Instead, that's swinging back, and that's likely to be the case until the tightening cycle is definitively over. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because we didn't really see the reaction in, say, the megatech companies that we might have expected in, quote-unquote, more normal times. That has yet to come, I guess, too, potentially. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and that depends a lot on how the economy develops. I mean, if you look at consumer sentiment roaring higher, the Citigroup Economics Prize Index shows that most data releases are beating expectations. So, and, and yeah, the Atlanta now Fed tracker is, is at a decent level when it comes to GDP. So the economy is showing a fair bit of resilience. As long as the economy shows resilience, you can hold out hope that equities in particular will get through this with decent gains or even better than decent gains, especially when you're thinking of techs. The worry has to be that there's still a strong expectation for a recession. So at some stage, a recession is going to hit. That's still the base case for most investors. And the question is, you know, can megatechs and, and other companies hold on to the gains that they've booked so far this year if we do get a recession, especially if it's a deep one and not a shallow recession. But if the labour market tightness doesn't weaken a little bit, how can we possibly get a recession? <laughs> well, I, and, and to some extent, that's that's the Fed's you know, reasoning and willing to go higher and higher on rates to make sure inflation comes down. You know, they regularly refer to the lessons of the 1980s where they eased off too soon is the received wisdom, and they eased off too soon. Why? Because it looked like the economy was going into recession. But why should they ease off now unless inflation is visibly on its way down sustainably to the target range if the labour market is still this strong, if the signs of a recession aren't there? I mean, they kind of said, look, we're not going to stop until inflation is down, even if we're risking a recession. And at the moment, it doesn't look like they're risking a recession. So why stop? 
We did get the minutes this week too, though, Garfield, and it seemed like because we didn't know as much then as we know now, Fed officials were also willing to believe that things were going in their direction, when in fact, then we got this massive jobs report and plenty of economic data that suggested inflation wasn't coming down. Are Fed officials willing to believe that the lag is actually shorter than it is too? Well, I think Fed officials are very much in a watch and respond mode. Part of the point of the steep rate hikes from last year was precisely to get from extremely loose conditions where they were helping to exacerbate an overheated economy to restrictive territory. Now, from the Fed's point of view, now that they're in restrictive territory, they can take smaller steps as they increase that level of restrictiveness or even pause for a while to see if that level is as restrictive as they need to get. But that's very different from a scenario where they say, oh, okay, we've done enough, therefore we can look to cut rates. Again, they only going to look to cut rates if A, inflation is back down very close to target, and B, they can see that the economy is really, really in trouble. Now, in the short term, what they're more alert for are signs that the economy is continuing to show more strength than they expected, then the minutes seem to indicate 50 basis points might be back on the table. And certainly at least three 25 basis point hikes seems to be the consensus for what is the base case of what's going to be needed. And if the data continues to come in stronger than expected, well, then they would look to, if they don't go 50, then they might go further just with their 25 basis point hikes to keep the pressure on. Garfield, since the market is still projecting a chance of a rate cut in December, does that imply that the market thinks there'll be a month where we suddenly see the data completely fall off a cliff? Because there's not that many months left between now and December, really. (laughs) Well, yeah, they do obviously see a fairly swift turnaround. And to be fair, previous cycles, we have seen that sort of thing. We've seen a switch to rate cuts or at least to an easing bias within three to six months of the peak in the Fed rate. Mm-hmm. Now, as people have been pointing out to me, the difference is this time around, inflation is much more elevated. So that's going to you know, stay the Fed's hands to some extent, you would think, unless the data really collapses you know, when it comes to turning towards rate cuts. But there are a lot of difficulties in navigating the current climate because So much in the way of data and and other phenomena are extraordinary in the because of the pandemic and the post pandemic. You're never quite clear to what extent things can revert back to how they were in the years before the pandemic. But you know, markets and economists inevitably do factor in historical modeling. So if you think that things are going to work the way that they worked, in the past, and if you look at the latest Bloomberg Economist Consensus recession indicator, with a 65% chance of a US recession within a year, if you think there's a better than 50% chance of a recession within a year, you probably think there's a better than 50% chance of a rate cut mm. within a year. Stay tuned. We continue our conversation with Garfield Reynolds in moments on Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. Let's return now to our conversation with Garfield Reynolds. We'll get his thoughts on the churn at the Bank of Japan in moments, but first... This process is likely to take quite a bit of time. It's not going to be, uh, we don't think, smooth. It's probably going to be bumpy. And so we think that we're going to need to do further rate increases, as we said, and we, we think that we'll need to hold policy at a restrictive level for a period of time. Some final thoughts on Fed Chair Powell's dilemma. How does Fed Chair Jerome Powell reconcile saying we are going to get to a certain point and we are going to hold and also say you're data dependent and you might need to move basically with a trigger finger? Well, the lodestone for the Fed remains inflation. And as long as that is at the elevated levels that it, that it is, you're well above the Fed's target, they can be clear that we're more interested in raising rates from here than in holding them, let alone lowering them. If it does, you know, come down strongly from here, you know, if we do get uh, a return to the disinflationary trend that we had, and if indeed that disinflationary trend accelerates, that's a weird way of saying it, you know, if we get inflation coming down faster than, uh, than it currently is and to levels that would be consistent, well, then the Fed could be willing, yeah, to switch to an easier step, to a less hawkish bias, especially if there are also signs that the economy is starting to roll over. However, if you've got inflation coming down rapidly, so you can see it getting to the appropriate levels, but the economy is still booming, well, you're certainly not going to be interested in cutting rates because that would be repeating the mistakes of the 1980s, which is what they've said they, they don't want to do. And, you know, the Fed has said... The path to they do think they can achieve a soft landing, but it's a very narrow path. They also signal that they're willing to err on the side of risking a hard landing, provided that ensures that inflation uh, is tamed. You know, this this time round, they don't want to see elevated inflation lasting for a long time and feeding into expectations. So mm. that's part of why you know, bond space the potential for further pain because if the Fed is willing to stay harsher for longer, that that could that could keep yields higher uh, for longer. And also why equities you know, could face uh, a bit of a double jeopardy, A, because rates might be higher than they think, B, because the Fed might end up with that hard landing despite its best efforts, and that's not going to be good for stocks. It might be good for bonds. It's probably not going to be good for stocks. Garfield, can we pivot to Japan for a moment? How in control is the BOJ? It appeared that traders were attacking the 0.5% upper limit on the band again this week. Oh, they certainly were. I mean, they're difficult to use. There just aren't many 10-year bonds around in Japan because the BOJ's bought them all. So it's not easy. Um, the, the benchmark yield has closed at the 0.5% you know, target every trading day since February 10th when it rose to that level and then it's been stuck there even if the last couple of days it's jumped above. Now, overwhelming consensus is that yield curve control is going to have to go probably sooner rather than later, that it's not sustainable 
that Uweda will have to change things once he becomes BOJ governor because the BOJ owns too much of the market. Already it's dysfunctional, it causes your problems for banks, for other companies, with, with everything that's going on. And also there's concern that the yen could resume steep declines unless the BOJ finds a way to buy fuel bonds. So those are all the issues and the difficulties. There's this very strong anticipation that Japanese yields are going to go higher. The only question is when, and the secondary one is how. How, Because there is a worry. Yes, there is a worry that if you take the lid off again or even, you know, shift it a little bit higher, that, you know, all sorts of volatility could could break out, and in particular, you could get foreigners fleeing the short end of the market where they've been uh, reaping the rewards of the cross-currency basis trade, uh, and that that could send yields jumping on a range of tenors, that that could then set off a valuation shock for Japanese investors who hold those bonds and now suddenly have to mark them to market. So there's a lot of your concern bubbling away beneath the surface, even as, to stretch a metaphor, the Bank of Japan you know, pushes down hard uh, on the lid of the boiling cauldron that it claims to control. Right. I mean, it's a terrifying prospect for Kazuo Ueda. And National Core CPI is at 4.3%, so it's not as if it's helping really in terms of inflation or what the longer run outlook for inflation will be. Obviously, Japan wants it back up to 2%. Is Kazuo Ueda suddenly going to innovate in monetary policy and think of something new? Well, that would be one way to resolve things. The difficulty is, you know, what can they come up with and you know, how do they try and you know, move back to a more normal way of doing things when they own so much of the bond market and they also have a government that you know, sees a need to spend, for example, on defence and, and on other reforms. Uh, and so it's going to go on borrowing. It's not going to want to see Japanese yields go too high. And Japan in general is a, is a country where they prefer to see things move uh, at, a, at a measured pace most of the time. Mm. So you, you think he's going to try to be conciliatory. He's going to try to move gradually. But then he himself has said at times that um, if you were going to end yield curve control and negative rates, that it would be better to do it in one fell swoop uh, in order to avoid everybody betting against you and in order to you know, to be able to, to control the process better than if you signal or allow people to assume that it's going to be something that takes place gradually. Right. Now, options markets are positioning for him to retain flexibility. What are the odds? And I realize I'm asking you to answer something that's really unanswerable. But do you think there's any possibility that he might actually do away with it completely in April and just surprise everybody? That's a possibility. His soon-to-be predecessor, Kuroda, managed to surprise markets 10 years ago when he took over. And Everybody knew that some sort of extraordinary monetary easing was coming because that was part of the three arrows. But the way he did it, the extent to which he did it, caused huge shocks uh, initially. And in fact, in the first week or two of a Japanese yield jump up and then down, there was a lot of strain, there was a lot of concern, a lot of volatility in the yen as well. 
And then in 2014, well, so-called second bazooka, Kuroda also surprised. Again, even though people were expecting him to increase easing, they weren't quite sure that he, he shocked them with the way he did it. So there's definitely the potential for a surprise. That would be very surprising, of course, so to speak. The more likely scenario would seem that he tries to hold the fort for a while, at least while he possibly commissions a review or you know, takes measures to try and improve the way the market is working. Whatever he does in a lot of ways is going to surprise because if he does do essentially nothing at the first meeting, that's also going to be a shock. And a lot is going to depend on how well he sells whatever the message is that he's sending. This is his first chance to show what he has when it comes to being a communicator of policies or potential policies and how he sees things being developing. Uh, And in particular, he's also obviously talking to a very important constituency, the Japanese governing class. Chief Rates Correspondent Garfield Reynolds there. Next, is your chat GPT benign? Well, define benign. We'll speak with Bloomberg's Tim Culpin in Taipei. This is Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. China may have a chatbot advantage, according to Bloomberg Opinion's Tim Culpin. We had an IRL conversation about the ethical questions surrounding this technology that's seeing a race for territory from many of the major tech companies across the globe. Generative AI has obviously suddenly become the revelation du jour. You've pointed out that domestic internet companies in China had an advantage in search because literally the Great Firewall, other companies weren't even there in the first place, or they left once censorship threatened their product. So now China has potentially a chance again to seize the territory. Explain to us your thesis. So one of the biggest struggles we're seeing with ChatGPT, and that's essentially a brand name of OpenAI, the startup, one of the challenges we've seen already is that it doesn't always get things right. And then when Google came out famously <laughs> just recently and showed off their own version, literally in their, their initial ad, they made a mistake, right? So the problem is that they're gathering data from a huge corpus of information. A lot of this information is conflicting, right? So, you know, it mixes up east and west, north, south, you know, black and white. It's just sky blue, right? That kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, humanized, but that doesn't make sense. But because it is just a bot, it's it's not mm-hmm. smart. We see a lot of stuff spat out by ChatGPT that looks very confident. It looks very authoritative. But then on closer inspection, you realize it's rubbish. It's just not true. And that's because they are working on a very large corpus of information out there in the world, including, you know, social media, things like Reddit. And, you know, there's not necessarily any fact-checking going on in social media, shock horror. Um mm-hmm. And so that's the problem. Whereas in China, it's a bit dystopian to say this. In China, if you're crawling the corpus of, of Chinese information because of censorship, then the information you're going to see on the Chinese internet is, I wouldn't say it's, it's true or accurate, but you could say it's vetted to an extent. Now, 
Now, not all information in China has been censored, but we have so many years of this structure of censorship and control of information that if something is online in China on a website, on social media, even if it's not necessarily true in the, in the factual sense, but at least, you know, some sense or whatever has better than said, yes, you know, it's true in our eyes. And yes. so... That means that the ChatGPT versions that are being developed by companies like Baidu and NetEase and Alibaba, if they assume that they call only the Chinese website, then they're going to be calling vetted information. And so the information they spit out when given a query is going to be somewhat more aligned with what censors might call accurate. And so you're going to get information that does align to be somewhat generally correct. Is it and possible? so you're not going to have these problems. Is it possible, though, that these versions will have their own biases built in because of the nature of China's censorship? Oh, absolutely. So if you're going to use a Chinese version of a chat GPT, it's going to align with the Communist Party's view of the world, right? So if you ask them politically sensitive questions about the US or Taiwan or China's place in the world, you are going to get that view of the world, right? Yes. That's absolutely going to happen. Not because the chat GPT boss itself is, you know, necessarily biased, but it's coming from, you know, a biased view of the world. You know, the corpus that it's dragging, you know, it's pulling its data from is going to be aligned with that. So that's definitely going to be a problem. But in the initial phase of training this stuff, we're in the very, very, very early days of all this happening. This is, you know, a 10, 20 year thing. In the very early days of it, the biggest risk you have with any of these chatbots is if it keeps spitting out bad information, people won't rely on it. They won't trust it. They may move away from it. And the other thing is you can manipulate it. Right? Mm. It, it wouldn't take much for me to set up a chat GPT bot, find a topic that I want to basically rewrite the narrative on, balloons in the sky and UFOs, for example, and for I example. could just use chat GPT to create, yeah, for example, to create a lot of false fake news and then post that on you know various websites. I could create a website. I could put it on Reddit. And then this corpus, as these corpuses of, of data they train on get updated, it would be taking in the fake news that I've created. So it would be this echo chamber of problematic false news. Mm. And you can do that in the West because we have basically free speech. In China, much more difficult to do that. So the misinformation in China would be, you know, state-sponsored misinformation, which yes. you can control, right? And you can, you know, put it in whatever direction you like. But when it's in, you know, a Western countries or those with more free and open information, my fear is the fire actors could come in and use these tools, manipulate them, and then poison the data, poison the well of information they're using to train. So Baidu has announced it's going to debut a bot next month. Alibaba is already conducting internal tests on a chat tool, and NetEase is also unveiling plans to offer something it's slightly different sphere there that's an education. Given that internet seems so much more regulated in China, do you imagine that users will come from around the world to use the Chinese ones and vice versa, that perhaps Chinese companies or Chinese individuals even will want to use US ones, or will this be something that will be very tailored to specific markets in terms of territory? Yeah, I think I think that's a key point. I think we're back to where we were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago with search engines, where, you know, Baidu's had the market for search in China for, for a very long time because the Western companies like Google and Yahoo really couldn't get access to the market. So we'll be back to that point. What we will see is, you know, accuracy is a huge issue. We don't have data from OpenAI now about how accurate they are. They don't seem to be releasing the data. I think at some point they will have to. 
But at some point in future, when Baidu, Alibaba, Microsoft, Google, all these companies start coming out with various metrics about how good their chatbots are, they'll be saying, we're, we've got an accuracy rate of this. Or maybe third-party researchers, academics will do research and come out with accuracy numbers. We will actually see the Chinese versions have that accuracy rate because they're pulling from a smaller corpus of data. But in the longer term, it won't matter because you know, China's not going to allow Microsoft and Google and all the other you know, overseas chatbots to service the Chinese market. That's not going to happen. And now with the way things are trending with TikTok, for example, and TikTok's, you know, struggling to even stay in the US, I don't imagine that Baidu's chatbot AI or Alibaba's chatbot AI is going to be allowed to access the American market. Mm. So we're going to have a very distinct kind of market for the two, and that'll allow both of them to claim that they're better than the other. But it won't matter because it'll never be a head-to-head matchup. Is there something that U.S. companies can learn, though, from China companies? You say that content self-regulation is built into the DNA of Chinese internet companies, and obviously that's something that resonates because content self-regulation, I suppose, is another word for potentially another phrase for censorship. But the fact that China is doing it and has been doing it for a long time and has managed to sort of police this crazy Wild West, is there something that a Facebook and a Google and all of the others can learn? Well, it would be a dangerous thing for foreign websites, social media companies and so forth to go down that road. I don't think it's worked out for the Chinese people. And I think in the long term, I don't think it's sustainable. There's arguments to be made about, you know, why China needs to do this to keep, you know, social stability and so forth. But I, I really think in the long term, it's a net negative. I think the real struggle that, you know, the companies in the West, not just the US, in the West in general, are going to face with these kind of AI chatbots and so forth is ensuring that the data they're using to inform them and train on is clean, is correct, has correct information. I think that problem can be solved over time. I don't think they're going to be able to rely on you know, content moderators. But if you, for example, weighted more heavily to authoritative sources, such as, say, news outlets or government information. So if you want to write about you know, stars and telescopes and supernova, you probably would weight that more to, say, the European or the North American Space Agency rather than some blog or some Facebook post, right? Academic journals might be a place you might want to more heavily weight over something you see on Twitter. So there's ways that you can weight these things to more authoritative things, authoritative sources. And, you know, you might, for example, have news media up higher compared to social media. Now, of course, a lot of people disagree with that, say, no, mainstream media can't be trusted. But there is ways that you can tinker with it to ensure that you're weighting more heavily towards known authoritative sources. And over time, the AIs can learn from that. And so it is, it's not a hopeless problem. It can be dealt with. It's just a matter of ensuring that these companies slow down, don't rush to get things out, slow down and really think very, very carefully about the sources of their data mm. and not be in a hurry to put every bit of data available into their, their training algorithms so that they can have you know, better returns or better output. Bloomberg Opinions, Tim Culpin. Bloomberg Opinions' Alexis Leondis joins now to discuss a problem with the housing market that started as a gift. So, Alexis, what do the data show us about homeowners with mortgages who already have a rate below 4%? What kind of situation are they in right now? We see that about two-thirds of homeowners right now who have mortgages 
are sitting pretty, if you will, with a rate below 4%. So that means, you know, they purchased homes or they refinanced, so they have pretty low rates. And many of them are feeling stuck. There's this lock-in effect where if they were to buy a new home, they would lose that rate. And sometimes if they had a 3% rate, be looking at a 6 plus percent rate. So because of that, so many homeowners are feeling stuck. You know, they're lucky enough to have a low rate, but they're afraid to move or they're just worried that the costs are going to be so exorbitant compared to where they are right now. What if you don't want to move? What can you do? You feel like your current home is too small or too old or has things about it that you want to change, you know, then maybe it's worth taking out a second mortgage to renovate and then you can stay put. You don't have to give up your old mortgage rate. You take on a new mortgage rate that, yes, is going to be more expensive, but combined, when you have this blended rate, you actually may be paying less than you would be if you went out and bought a new home or tried to do a cash-out refi on your existing home. So how does a second mortgage work in that case then? Do you just get the prevailing mortgage rate for a certain amount of money, but obviously it wouldn't be as much of an amount of money as if you were actually buying a home? That's exactly right. So basically what you do is you tap the equity in your home and you take out a lump sum at a fixed rate, typically for 20 years, while keeping the original mortgage intact. So because of that, second mortgages tend to be for smaller amounts. And they're also known as home equity loans, but they're different from home equity lines of credit. There, the rates are variable, as is the amount. You're extended a line of credit, so you you may borrow more or less. But with the home equity loan or the second mortgage, you're basically taking out a fixed sum. Do you cash in on the amount that your home has appreciated by and try and buy something maybe just a little better or not? Because if you buy something a little better, you're going to be, as you say, stymied by that new mortgage rate. Right. And that's why also I want to point this out is home equity is still at record. Yes, we've seen home prices dip a bit, but they're still up 40%. So because of that, people are sitting on an extreme amount of wealth in their actual homes. So that's part of this idea of, well, how can I leverage my home? Don't want to over leverage. We don't want to go back to the dangerous days leading up to the Great Recession. But what can people do safely to kind of tap the equity in their home and be able to renovate or use the proceeds to pay down debt or, you know, do smart things with that money? Because again, they're sitting on their home that are worth quite a lot. And that's why, like, so if you were to do a cash-out refi, there's a very helpful example from Lori Goodman over at the Urban Institute's Housing Finance Policy Center. Mm. Let's say you want to take out $100,000 in home equity. If you were to do a cash-out refi, you would say pay around a 6.5% new interest rate on a loan. You would have a monthly payment of about $1,900. But if you keep your existing mortgage rate, let's say, at 3%, you take out a second mortgage at a much higher rate, even when you blend that together, your total monthly payment for both loans is probably going to be less than it would be if you did the cash out refi. Now, Alexis, not all banks, not even many of the traditional banks do second mortgages, do they? Right. Some do. I think you'll have a better chance if you are interested in doing a second mortgage looking at some of the non-traditional lenders. Rocket Mortgage offers a product. PennyMac does as well. They've all introduced versions relatively recently. And again, just keep in mind that you will have to have you know good credit in order to qualify for these things. Probably not quite as high of a credit score as you need to have with a home equity line of credit, but you'll still have to have a good credit score, documentation of income to show that you have the ability to repay and so forth. But I do think we're going to see more more interest in these products than we have in the last few years. And do we have any data on how many people are tapping into them yet or whether that number is rising? Yes, according to Equifax, from January to August of 2022, second mortgage origination totaled more than $50 billion. It was about $53 billion. Now, remember, it's a very, very tiny sliver of the overall you know, trillion-dollar mortgage market plus, but that $53 billion is a 50% jump from the previous year. So there is more interest, that's for sure. 
Bloomberg Opinion's Alexis Leondas there. Well, that does it for this week's opinion. Do feel free to get in touch. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email me at vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.